Welcome back, everybody. This is episode 49 of the Independent Intel Podcast. Your usual host, Kambui Bomani, is back yet again this Saturday to drop a weekend podcast segment. We have a variety of topics to talk about today, featuring yours truly going solo dolo. Wasn't able to accumulate a guest for this week's pod, but it'll be an eventful one nonetheless. With just me spewing my intel, my insight, and my various takes on Topics such as the reaction to the Eagles and Saints pre-draft trade, the winners and losers, in my opinion. I'm going to go really abreast on three bullet points for the Eagles and the Saints on how, on really why I feel like they did this deal and what they can get the most out of the deal being constructed as it was. All NBA first, second, and third team selections. I'm going to give you my all NBA first, second, and third teams. As the NBA season winds to a close, it officially will end Sunday. Um, got a few games going on Saturday. Sunday, we'll kind of get to find out where these seedings will arrive. There's a lot of uh, things to figure out in the Eastern Conference as well, in the play-in sector, as well as in the non-play-in sector. Who will be the second seed since we know Miami has the first seed locked up? Uh, Debo Samuel wants to get paid. Honest conversation about the wide receiver market. Uh, Debo bought out last season full of San Francisco 49ers, and ever since the wide receiver market has fluctuated exponentially. He wants to be the highest paid non-defensive player in the league. We'll talk about if he deserves it, where the Niners should attack this payment dilemma in their wide receiver room. And the Lakers segment, that famous LA Lakers segment, the Lakers have been easily by far the biggest disappointment in the NBA this season. They're not even going to make the play in. Where should LA go from here? But before we dive into it, I want to give a thoughtful, 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 thoughtful statement on the passing of Dwayne Haskins. He died tragically this morning via a car accident. He was uh, walking across a crowded interstate where a truck hit him and he died in Florida. He was out in Florida thanks to Mitchell Trubisky. He kind of wanted his, Mitchell Trubisky to newly sign Pittsburgh Stool quarterback, wanted the Steelers' office to kind of meet and work out in Florida, and this is where Haskins sadly lost his life. I know a lot of things have been going around the social media airwaves on reporter Adam Schefter releasing the news. He was the guy that released the news to everybody and how in his Twitter statement he parlay the checkered NFL career of Dwayne Haskins where he struggled in Washington and was trying to find his professional roots again in Pittsburgh and a lot of people didn't like that he added this in such a somber statement where a person lost his life I do feel it was a very insensitive by Adam Schefter who was just paid by ESPN rather nine million per year and he's had his inconsiderate moments as a professional reporter Lately, a lot of people don't like Sheffy. Um, so it was really inconsiderate of him to delve into a very checkered professional pass for Haskins. We really want to just remember what he was good at his highest moments in life since he is gone at the age of 24. That's it's a tough loss for Haskins, man, because it just looked like he was able to find himself in Pittsburgh, really reignite his career, and for that to just be gone in a tragic car accident that he was a part of, and the rumor was he was trying to get caught gas, rather, for his car that had broken down, and that's where his life disappeared, man. It's a tough, tough thing to talk about, tough scene 
in its totality, it really puts everything in perspective that obviously I knew this, but other people now get to know these football players are human beings. They're people at the end of the day. And when they reach elements where their humanity is revealed, whether they lose someone that they love, they lose their own life, or they're involved in some legal matters, you realize at the end of the day, these people are human beings at the end of the day, human beings first and foremost, before they are football players and going to give a moment of silence to the life and being of Dwayne Haskins, the human being, more so than the Ohio State great quarterback. So with that, we're going to press on to more positive news, more insightful news on the variety of NFL topics we're going to talk about today, too. To be exact, let's dive into the Eagles Saints pre-draft trade. So the trade happened last Monday. Eagles shipped two of their three first-round selections to the New Orleans Saints, picks 16 and 19. And in return, the Eagles got the Saints' original number 18 pick in the first round back. All of these picks that I'm listing currently are in the first round uh, that I stated are in the first round of the 2022 NFL draft. They also receive the Saints number 101 overall pick, number 237 overall pick, and also a 2023 first round pick and a 2024 second round pick. So the Eagles, man, they came into the draft with three first round selections that were really in the same linear equation. Uh, they had pick 15, pick 16, and pick 19. And we're going to dive into what this trade means for the Eagles. Three important things for Philly. So the first thing off rip, they avoid having to pay three potential standouts. First round rookie contracts, rather, around the same time. And NFL teams have been very conscious about not paying, rather not picking multiple first round selections because they don't want to have to pay them around the same time, especially worry about picking multiple first-round selections that pay the same position because if they both boom and their rookie deals are up, they're going to want extensions and you might have a Debo same new situation at their at your disposal. That's really what the Niners are going through right now. So that's really the first part that I recognize and why Philly wanted to do this move. I, don't, I didn't really consider that they trade one of their three first-round picks. I always thought they'd use all of them because Philly is still in a rebuilding stage as a franchise. Last year was such an anomaly of a season where they made the playoffs. Jalen Hurst showed elements of evolution as a quarterback. Their defense, most importantly, their secondary, was able to rectify their ineptitude thanks to Darius Slade coming onto the scene and playing well that he did his first year. All of those things happened for Philadelphia. They were able to make the playoffs as, I think, the last seed in the NFC. But the bottom line is they're still not – there yet as a franchise they're still building so this rebuild that they're still on gives them a flexibility to still keep two first round picks maybe and i expect with those two first round picks that they have they'll attack the offense and a defensive side and now you get future draft capital down the line which leads me to the second statement i have this move showcases trust and belief in jalen hurts for at least another season one of those two picks are going to go into applying a wide receiver two in their offense to replace the bust known as Jalen Rager. This was a huge season for Jalen Hurts last year. They put all their stock in him being their QB1 in 2021 just to see where he could lead this franchise, and he led them to a playoff berth. Now, it wasn't just him, 
a lot of good things happened for that team. Their defense turned it around after a very inept 2020 season. Hurts used, utilized his legs a lot more than his arm that second half of the year as Nick Sirianni decided to make the Philadelphia Eagles become a more run-centric offense. And Hurts profited off of that by utilizing his legs and the bevy of running backs behind him. And last but not least, we saw what he was able to do with Dallas Goddard and Devontae Smith. They showcased solid passing productivity in a receiving game with Hurts as a quarterback. And so now that you see how their offense is currently constructed, their offensive line, we hope this year is going to be a lot more healthy than it was last. Dallas Goddard is their T1. They moved off of um, Zach Ertz. Devonta Smith has become their wide receiver one. I think now they add a wide receiver two to replace Rager. And in a deep wide receiver clash, you can't go wrong. And I think that's where they're going to do at pick 15. I think they're going to pick a receiver. And then I think pick 19, they might address the linebacker situation because it has been rumored by a ton of Eagle insiders, by Eagle fans, that the linebacking core on their roster is bottom to the barrel. It's very weak. It's not... I think their best linebacker, Alex Singleton, a former Eagle, he's now a Bronco now. So they have to address that LB one spot quickly. And I think they will. So if it was up to me from a projection standpoint, I think Philadelphia, they're going to take receiver first at pick 15. If Garrett Wilson happens to fall to them, I think he's going to be their wide receiver two option. And I think at pick 19, they're going to have a choice between, I think all the linebackers will be there. They're going to have a choice between the Kobe Dean. Um, trying to think i know it's nicobe dean is the first one troy anderson i don't think he's going to go that early but it's going to be nicobe dean and devin lord i think they're the top two backers in the draft by a lot of consistent draft experts i think that's where philly's going to go now what type of backer that they'll want remains to be seen but they're going to go wide receiver two and they're going to go linebacker what with their first two first round picks so they're able to address those things and now that extra pick that they probably were always shopping because maybe in Philly's minds, they never expected to use three first-round picks to address their needs, even though they're still rebuilding roster. That first-round pick has now been swindled towards future assets down the line, which goes into my third point. This move was about future draft capital. In case Hurts doesn't work out, they have an extra future first than the Saints that they can swindle to maybe get a disgruntled but accomplished QB in the future. Kirk Cousins is going to be a free agent next year, so maybe they might join the Kirk Cousins sweepstakes if Hurts regress, or they can draft one in a deep quarterback class this year. Overall, having an extra first and a second round pick for future drafts adds extra flexibility for the franchise moving forward. Because like I said, Philadelphia is still going through a rebuild. I don't think the rebuild will ever be complete, probably until maybe that 2024 draft. We'll get to see where Philly is as a franchise from a perspective of moving forward towards postseason productivity. But the future draft capital allows them to have another year under Hertz to see his development if the development doesn't pan out. But in the process, they're still a very good team, and the Saints are a very good team. So no longer is that first-round pick online you to get maybe that elite quarterback that you want. You can trade probably that first-round pick for an established veteran quarterback that can come in and maybe take you over the top. And the guy that pops into my mind is Kirk Cousins. Now, Minnesota thought Kirk Cousins would be that when they got rid of Case Keenum. He's never become that. So Philly would probably more than likely fall into that same trap if they do a deal with Minnesota. But I think it's a move that they do if 
Hurts doesn't progress, but the team as a whole is still good enough to be a wild card competitor. And everything is relying on what the Saints are. And I know a lot of people in Philly think that this is a good move for the Eagles because they're banking on the Saints digressing. While I think this is a good move for the Eagles as well, I don't think the Saints will digress like the fan base in Philly thinks they will to make that first-round pick have legitimate factors towards getting an elite quarterback prospect in next year's draft. It's going to be at the back end, but with that back end selection, you can possibly mortgage that to get maybe an established quarterback somewhere else that's disgruntled, whether if it's Derek Carr, let's say Derek Carr in, in Vegas, it's like, eh, I'm not really rocking with the vibes here. Kirk Cousins, I brought up as an example, I'm going to bring him up again. He's probably got the best shot to be on the free agency block next year because I don't expect Minnesota to keep him long-term past this season. I think he's just their holding block moving forward. So these are all options. And who knows? Let's say Baker Mayfield stays on Cleveland's roster this year. They can enter the Baker Mayfield sweepstakes if they feel like. So that first-round draft capital gives them an opportunity to either get a draft prospect that's a QB or to mortgage that to get a disgruntled veteran guy that can come in and be a plug-and-play guy to help take this team over the top. Um, I think if it's up to Philly, they'd want Hurts to showcase major progression in year three to where now they're comfortable with him as their starter moving forward, and they can just use those draft capitals to build out a more complete, competent roster. Now, what does the trade mean for my New Orleans Saints? Yes, I'm a huge Saints fan. I've talked about this before on the pod, and this is a part of the trade detail that I want to really dive into and get in-depth with. So, number one, I think it's pretty obvious. They're going all in on making this year's draft their legendary 2017 equivalent. If a lot of you guys don't know, in 2017, the New Orleans Saints drafted in one draft class alone, Marshawn Lattimore, Ryan Ramchek, Marcus Williams, and Alvin Kamara as their first four picks. All have panned out, and they're either all pros, pro bowlers, or solid NFL talents. They've all moved on to their second NFL contracts. Lattimore's got his second contract with the Saints. Ramchek's got his second contract with the Saints. Alvin has his second contract with the Saints. And Marcus Williams got his second contract with the Baltimore Ravens. So they all panned out. And I haven't even mentioned Trey Hendrickson, who was, I think, a fifth or fourth round pick, maybe a fifth round pick in that sector. Didn't even mention him. He got his second contract with the Bengals and arguably was their best pass rusher during their Super Bowl run. Um, I feel like they're going to try to make a similar splash in 2022. Now with two first round picks, just like they had in 2017. In 2017, during that draft process, they had one. And with that one draft pick, they took Lattimore and then they traded back into the first round to, in their hopes, get Reuben Foster. He didn't pick up the phone when the Saints called till the Niners took him, and that allowed them to get Ryan Ramchek at the back half of the first round. It worked out for the Saints that it failed that way. I expect them to kind of do some similar things in that round. Not it. And alongside those two first-round picks, you got a second-round pick that's 49th overall, and you have a third-round pick that's 98th overall. The team has five picks in the top 120. I was talking about this to my man, Blue, and I'm going to say it again. This is a very deep draft. Is this a quarterback-friendly draft? No, but it's deep everywhere else. You can get solid depth at running back, receiver, O-line, D-line, cornerback, safety, even on the linebacker class is quite kind of weak, in my opinion, the linebackers no one is talking about. Uh, talking about rather, 
the Chad Mumas, the Troy Andersons, the guys that aren't LB1 and LB2, and a lot of people's eyes those are on the Kobe Dean and Devin Lloyd. It's a deep backer class as well, and the Saints do need linebackers. I think Mickey Loomis, Jeff Ireland, and Dennis Allen saw what Sean Payton was able to bring in 2017 that allowed the Saints to have a five-year playoff window. They want that window to be re-maximized again because that 2017 class is locked up at this point. They're either on their team or somewhere else. They need to bring another influx of guys coming in to where if they hit right off, it allows them to build a foundation for the team with that class as well. And they're looking at 2022 as a way to do that. Now, my second reason is this. The first round picks won't be used on QB unless Malik Willis or Kenny Pickett slot. Now, from what I've read and heard from Saints and NFL insiders is that they've openly quoted four QBs. They've brought in Pickett for an interview. They brought in Willis for an interview. They brought in Desmond Ritter for an interview. And they brought in Sam Howell for one. I think they like Pickett the best, followed by Willis because of his upside and Howell due to his mobility and deep ball accuracy. I don't think Pickett and Willis will be there for the Saints to take. And if they're not, I think they go left tackle and wide receiver respectively. If they are, then they'll go for tackle and their future QB, as they've shown throughout free agency, they're not sold on Jameis Winston. So when the trade happened, all the NFL insiders were like on Twitter, oh my gosh, the Saints, they're only doing this if they're going to trade up for a quarterback. And at first I was like, no, I'm pretty sure they didn't do all of this to trade up for a quarterback. And still to this day, I'm like, after some thinking, I'm not going to lie, I mold over a little bit and kind of entertain their perspective a little bit as well before going back to my own. They're not trading up for a quarterback. The only way that they'll take a quarterback if is if one that they like falls. I don't think Willis or Pickett will fall into me personally. Those are the guys they have first-round grades on to where if they did, they take one of them with one of their first two first-round picks. The bottom line is they're not sold on James Winston. They courted Deshaun Watson until Deshaun Watson chose the bag in Cleveland. All right. And they waited. Well, they didn't wait. The rumor was Jameis always had the contract on standby. Jameis did take the contract deal with the Saints, at least back in New Orleans, but it's only a two-year deal. It's got a lot of money, $26 million, but a lot of it is incentives, and a lot of it is hinged on the year coming up being the season that Winston is able to sell to the new coaching regime, minus Peyton, that he's their guy moving forward. If he does, then... I don't think they're in the market for quarterback anymore, but if he's kind of like mediocre and they make the playoffs, but it's pretty clear that they don't go as far as they could because he's limited, then I don't think they maintain him beyond this year. That's pretty obvious that they're not sold on Winston yet because maybe behind the scenes, they feel like under Sean Payton, who did hold Winston back extremely, he wasn't what he used to be or his traits that made him a number one overall pick didn't showcase themselves on the field consistently last year because the playbook was restrained in terms of him maximizing his fullest potential. And when he was able to, his, his weaknesses did come out. He does hold on to the ball too long. Um, there's a statement that I've heard my dad make to me. He reads the field weird in the context of you usually go, Check down, intermediate, then deep shot. Winston, he reads the field, drops back, 
shot play, and then when that, that's not there, he goes – he reads the field backwards, basically. It's shot play first, and if that's not there, then he reads to its intermediates and check downs. He's a big play guy. And being a big play guy, he does tend to hold on to the ball too long, get sacked, fumble, all of those things that result in the turnovers aren't good for your quarterback to have. So it does open the door on the fact that he may not be the long-term answer. And so because of that, I, I do think the Saints are intrigued by a quarterback prospect in this week quarterback class. But I only think they have a first-round grade on Willis and Pickett to where they'd use their 16th and 19th overall picks on a QB. I don't think Willis and Pickett make it out the top 10. I'm com- We're convinced at this point, right? Carolina's taking a quarterback at six. So one of those guys are going to be gone. Now, whether it's Willis or Pickett remains to be seen. Pickett has the connection with rule dating back to the recruiting days in temple and i think their owner has pittsburgh ties pittsburgh university ties so that's where the pick connection is there but then on the willis side tapper wants a superstar at quarterback and malik willis upside screams dual threat superstar so they're gonna take one of those two guys now will atlanta or seattle take one remains to be seen because we agree atlanta and seattle are rebuilding and if they're genuinely rebuilding, they might bypass on a quarterback and just take the best player available on the board that more so will align on the defensive side or maybe at receiver and just be like, you know what, we're going to just rock with it. Next year, we'll get the quarterback that we want. But if they are rebuilding but are willing to take a flyer on a QB that they know they'll have two to three years to develop until they're on the chopping block in terms of competing, then they might take a flyer or whoever falls from Carolina in terms of the odd man out of the Kenny Pick and Malik Willis transaction. So, and Arthur Blank has said they need a franchise quarterback. I think the Falcons would take Willis if he falls. And if they don't take him, I think Seattle will as well. So, because Seattle, I think, is in this weird predicament where they got rid of Russell Wilson and they traded Bobby Wagner. So no longer are the Legion of Boom team members from that Super Bowl. They're not there on the roster anymore. So it does scream like they're rebuilding, but they want to keep DK Metcalf. They haven't traded Tyler Lockett yet. They did give an extension to uh, Quandre Diggs. So it kind of makes me think, did Pete Carroll just get rid of his old championship player regime just so he can have new blood in that will follow his every move like he doesn't have to worry about Russell Wilson complaining about wanting a more intensive input on the offense I don't know anything about Bobby Wagner being a malcontent but for lack of a better terms in Pete Carroll's eyes Wilson was kind of a malcontent he kept condemning every offensive schematic principle that he made and was like I want input on the offense he finally got that input last year and he, he wasn't that good after the first two games now you can make a case that he got hurt and then once he came back from his injury he fell off but even before he got hurt he just wasn't the same trust me I watched the Saints Seattle well he didn't play in the Seattle game but he well, he didn't play in the Saints game that was on Monday night but Wilson just hasn't been the same so there is that so who knows? Maybe Seattle goes quarterback and it's like, look, we're going to get our quarterback in here. He's going to compete with Drew Locke. And if he wins, we're going to build a winning culture around him. 
So all I'm saying is there's a chance that Willis and Pickett go in the top 10. And if they do, I don't think the Saints take the quarterback in the first round. Then I think they'll entertain quarterback maybe in the third and probably use those top three picks at skill positions. They need a left tackle and they need a wide receiver. I mean, those, those are, and they need safety help. Now, the unique thing about the safety class is they all aren't, well, I don't want to say all, but the top ones, they're not Marcus Williams. So you're not going to get a guy that can come in and play like the deep middle and be like your last line of defense safety protector. You're not really getting that. What you see in Kyle Hamilton is a box safety. What you see in Louis Cena is a box safety. What you see in Brisker is kind of a box safety. Like they have, well, Hamilton has been clowned for not having the best range, which is why his stock has fell. Most importantly, his slow 40. But I've seen Cena and Brisker play a little bit. They have range, but range isn't the biggest aspect of their game in terms of their strength. Their strength is they do everything. They play around the box. They tackle. They can move their hips and play very well in tight man coverage situations. But you're not getting a Marcus Williams type free safety last line defender, Ed Reed. That safety isn't there for the Saints. So I'm intrigued to see how they're going to resolve the free safety spot. I know they re-signed P.J. Williams, and they are entertaining Tyron Matthew. And Matthew and Williams provide different elements at the free safety spot that Marcus never did. They're better uh, tacklers than Marcus. They're more physical than Marcus. And while they don't have the range that Marcus does, they can be able to hand into the tight crevices of coverages in man situations and make plays. So maybe the Saints defensive regime under Christian Sharn and Dennis Allen are moving on from having that, from playing that single high safety look and now just want safeties in the back end that are versatile to where they can line up anywhere and give complex coverage looks. We know Marcus May, former free safety for the Jets. He'll be strong safety. So it wouldn't surprise me if the Saints basically get two strong safeties in a way. And what I mean by that is, the strong safeties now in the NFL are kind of not what they used to be. Usually when you think of a strong safety, you think of Cam Chancellor and Bernard Pollard, guys that are thumpers while your free safety is more of the finesse coverage guy. That's the last line of defense that makes plays deep down the field to prevent the shot touchdown throws. And now the strong safety has nuance. He's versatile in coverage, but he's a willing run supporter. He can potentially hanging man coverage with a tight end and he can also if something breaks down be that last line of defense to make a playing coverage so that's the nuance of the strong safety position now that's what i'm seeing in this class coming in so it'll be interested to see if the saints basically get two strong safeties where one of them is just playing free and one of them is playing strong but they're able to survive because even though they're two strong safeties in prototype they are still able to provide productive levels of coverage ability within the game plan. So those are all things to really talk about. And the last thing for the Saints is the draft is designed to compete for an NFC title this season. The NFC is weak. And in their division, the Saints will honestly be competing with Tampa. This draft is designed to get at least three plug-and-play players from day one. If the Saints can get a wide receiver, too, with better upside than Harris, Callaway, and Smith, that's a win. They can get an O-lineman that's either a bookend left tackle, Bernhard Raymond or Charles Cross, or an O-lineman with athleticism, upside, and versatility, Trevor Penning, that's a W as well. The second, third, and fourth round picks are about value. 
maybe getting a starting caliber safety in the second, like the team did with Marcus Williams is a possibility. Third is open for some TE depth and maybe fourth round, some RB depth as well. This team could go a variety of ways with the assortion of picks that they have in 2022. They gave up future draft capital to maximize this year's deep class. They got to hit it right. Now, if the board falls like I think it will, which is Pickett and Willis go in the top 10, I think the Saints would pick 16, take a receiver first, and then pick 19, take a tackle. Now, I'm going to be honest. If they want to plug and play left tackle, you take Bernard Raymond or Charles Cross, because I think they can come in and be your blindside left tackle. Don't have to worry about him for the next, like, eight to ten years. Raymond has a short arm, so that's a worry. But the film I saw him against LSU in Missouri, he held his own against SEC pass rushers. He's a guy that if you just want to – you just want a left tackle, like just draft the left tackle and plug him in, those are your guys. Um, the rumor is Cross may fall because while he's a great blindside pass protector, there are questions about him in the run game. If he falls to us, like if he's there at 16, I think the Saints should take him first. Like then go against what I think, which is draft the receiver then the tackle first. Because if he's there at 16, then that means you better take him now. Because if you wait till 19, who knows if the Chargers or the Eagles decide to double dip that tackle. Even though they have stability at the left tackle side, they could get cross and say, hey, we'll move whoever's our left now to right and then I'll cross play left and keep it moving. So Best case scenario, in my opinion, Cross falls and the Saints can pick him. If he doesn't fall, I don't, I don't think they should take Trevor Penning first. They should take him with their second first-round pick. Look, Trevor Penning, I'm not going to lie, he's a Saints tackle, legit. Saints love those tackles that are raw athletes, but they're versatile. They can play all over. They're nasty. They're factors in run games, screen concepts, and that's Trevor Penning. He's raw as heck, and if you're expecting him to, like, get drafted right now and play left tackle ASAP, I don't think that's the move. I think if the Saints do take Penny, they should move him to right and then flip Ramchek to left. I mean, they're already paying Ramchek at right tackle like he is a left. Flip him to left, put put Penning at right, and I think it works because I see the draft comparisons. Taylor Lewan, he's got a mean streak in him. He's nasty. He's right now going to be at his best as a run blocker, and that's where right tackles usually thrive. Usually a lot of right tackles are guys that aren't good enough to be pass protectors on the outside, but they have strength, mobility, and power and agility to thrive on the right side as run stoppers. I mean, not run stoppers, run blockers. And that's what Penny could be for the Saints. So dream scenario for New Orleans would probably be they don't have to take a quarterback because the board wasn't, won't fall that way. And instead, they can get the receiver first and their tackle second. But if the board falls in a way where they can take one, I think they'll take the quarterback first and then probably take the receiver second. No, I backtrack on that. I think if the board falls like it is, they take quarterback first tackle because I think what has happened to the franchise this season has been during the offseason, they brought back Harris and Trey Quinsman. So I think they're content with heading into the season with the same receiving core but just banking on, you know what? Michael Thomas is back, and that's going to open it up for everybody else, which is true. It will. But you can never have enough depth in the receiver room. I think for the Saints' sake, they need to take a wide out, at least with their first three picks. I don't think they can just go into the year where, yeah, in the draft, they did draft the receiver, but they drafted him like the sixth round. He's more like a special teams guy. 
And it's like, you know what, we're going to roll, roll with our receiving core from the last two years. They need some new blood in there. Personally, they need a wide receiver to it upside because I think Harris just doesn't have the durability to survive at receiver, in my opinion. doesn't matter where on the field. I just don't think he has the durability. Callaway looks like more of a wide receiver three, in my opinion, than a two. And I like Traquan a lot, but his problem is doesn't gain a lot of separation. He also gets hurt as well. And he does drop some balls sometimes. So for the Saints' best bet, take a wide receiver to it upside in the first round and call it a day. I think a perfect fit for their system will be Chris Olave because he's like the best of both worlds. He's got the speed of a of a Devontae Harris, the route running ability of a Michael Thomas. And he's kind of versatile like a um, like a Thomas, like a Callaway as well. When I see Alave's tape, he reminds me a lot of like a young Devontae Adams. And before everybody's like, man, Devontae Adams, before Devontae Adams blew up later on in his career, he was a, a guy trying to find his way in the league out of the second round from Fresno State. And then he finally put it all together when he became the guy under Aaron Rodgers. Now, Alave won't have Aaron Rodgers thrown, so it'll more likely be Jameis Winston. But I think Alave makes sense for the Saints because he provides duality in the slot and out wide, he's a burner. And he's a guy that can run routes with precision. He open, he will open up the field, in my opinion, for Thomas. And if you could get him, they love Ohio State guys, by the way. You can get him to be your wide receiver, too. Line him up on the outside opposite of Thomas. And now as a third, you got Callaway in the slot. Opens up the offensive ability for that franchise as a whole. But um, who wins this trade? I think Philly does right now. And Philly's going to especially win it if things keep developing like it does. Because they have the most draft capital in the future. Like they got a future first and a future second. Saints don't have that. They the Saints win now, like in this draft. They're going all in to make 2022 their crown draft. So hopefully they don't miss. But I think Philly, like I stated, last year was supposed to be a rebuilding year. They lucked up and made the playoffs. This year they're kind of playing with house cars to where they can they're going to continue the rebuild. But now they're going to make this draft about fixing their most blatant needs on the roster, wide receiver two, linebacker. And then future draft capital next year is about if Hurts pans out. If Hurts pans out, now we can use those future draft capitals to maybe trade down for more assets or maybe trade to get another player that's not quarterback. Or we can utilize that draft pick to add more emphasis on a roster that we can find out a year later. The other weaknesses that they have. But if Hurts doesn't pan out, now you got two first rounders, yours and the Saints for next year and you can figure out a way to trade up to get those marquee QB prospects or if you don't like any of those guys you can go for the sure thing that'll be out there in free agency I think that guy will be Kirk Cousins if you want to entertain that so I think Eagles want to trade long term but I do feel both teams got the best of both worlds Saints get to cash in on this draft being their marquee gym it all works out and then Philadelphia got the cash in on the future while maintaining two first-round picks that they can use to address wide receiver two and linebacker. Moving on to the next topic at hand, the all-NBA first, second, and third teams. So I had the honor before the pod setting up these notes to figure out who I wanted to be on my all-NBA first, second, and third team. We're going to break this step-by-step, and we're going to go through this a little bit quickly because I think um, the first team is self-explanatory. I think the second team is kind of self-explanatory, too. The third team was a little tough, but – I'm probably going to spend the most time on the third team, breaking that down into totality. 
So the first team, I got Luca and Trey in the back. Not Luca and Trey. Oh, dang, Trey. Trey was not in my <laughs> in any of my all NBA first, second, and third teams. I'm gonna have to change that. I am gonna have to change that for sure. But taking the backcourt, Luca Doncic and John Moran are on my first team. Um, Luca's self-explanatory. He's got a career high in assists this year, 8.8. He's averaging 28 points per game, shooting 35% from the three. He made a career high three, three, three threes per game this season. This is the best I've seen Luca play since he's been in the league. And I will be the first to admit, I think he has been overrated the last two years in the sense of he hasn't achieved playoff winning yet for him to be crowned as the next up in the league, but he's talented as heck. And this is the first time I've seen him play as a complete basketball player. And I got to pay homage to Jason Kidd when they made a trade where KP was no longer on the squad and they got Dinwiddie in return. And Dinwiddie's been able, to pro- been able to prosper rather off the bench. And Luke has been more of a complete player with the starting unit, with him and Brunson having an array of shooters around him. He's been phenomenal. And he deserves the first team All-NBA now. John Morant, I think, is an easy decision. I know a lot of people have Curry making the team, but here's the problem, right? So Curry and Morant have both been out for a while. They both won't finish the regular season healthy. So that's that. So in lesser games than Curry, all right, because Morant's played 58, Curry's played 63, I think. He has more points than Curry. He's got more rebounds and assists than Curry. Um, And he's shooting better from the field than Curry. These are all just facts. I'm just being real. Uh, Morant individually has a career high in points per game, 27.6. Rebounds per game, 5.7. Assists per game, 6.7. Shooting a career best, 34% from three. As well as having a career high in shot attempts per game, 20. And makes per game, 10.2. He's even shooting a career high, 54% rather, from two-point range. When healthy, the team was 35 and 17. He's been the main catalyst of a Memphis second seeded surge out West. Like I stated before, I gave him the nod for first team over Curry, who in seven more games has less points per game, assists per game, total rebounds per game, and a lower field goal percentage than Morant this season. Look, man, I know Curry was dominant to start the year. First two months, he was an MVP front runner. But on his way to pursue the all-time leading three-point shooting makes record, he went in a slump. Then when he achieved it, he never was really the same. And yeah, when the team has been out, they haven't been the same as a unit. They have gotten some couple of big wins since you know Curry's been out. But this has been a down year for Steph Curry. I'm just going to be real. Now, his start was phenomenal. It looked like it was going to be a career year alike into the 73-9 and nine season he had, where he won unanimous MVP, but then he fell off. And on the job perspective, yeah, a lot of people are going to say, well, without Morant, Memphis is 20-4. and four which shows great onus to their depth and the improvement of the roster as a whole, because two years ago with the same roster, they were a playing team. The bottom line is Moran has had a career season. And when he's been out on the floor, they've looked like, now nah, I'm not going to say they look like when he's been out on the floor, he's better than the Warriors. Like Memphis is better than Golden State when they got Curry. That's just real. John Morant deserves the first team all NBA nod. Yeah, he's only played 58 games. But if we were talking about LeBron being second team and he's played less games than Morant, his team sucks. And we're going to let him be a second team all NBA because he got a scoring title. How can Morant not be first team 
and he's played more games than LeBron and has career high numbers across the board and has been a huge part of Memphis being a second team out West that no one saw coming. I mean, that's just crazy. The front court first teamer area, Giannis, Jokic, and Bede, self-explanatory. When NBA say they're going to add another forward spot to make sure all the big men get first team all NBA nods, I think it was deserved. I know a lot of basketball peers are complaining that are like, man, back in the day when Hakeem went against another elite big, they didn't all just lump him in. You got the you only got a first team nod off of the position you played. And if you played the center position, you had two good centers that year, then one center is going to be, yeah, yeah I, I get all that. But the bottom line is, these three international big men phenoms have been phenomenal. Phenomenal this year. All right. Giannis is doing Giannis things. He's actually averaging a career high in points per game. Everything else he's done is pretty Giannis S. He's got 1.1 steals, 1.4 blocks, 11.6 rebounds per game, 5.8 assists, shooting 55% from the field on 18 shots. He's been unreal. Embiid's had a career season, finally able to stay healthy throughout the year. Just Today, he played his 68 game. He's leading the league in scoring. He's shooting 36% from three, 49% from the field, 81% from the line. That's all NBA numbers. Jokic is having a better year than he had his MVP season. More points, more boards, not more assists, but 27-13 and almost eight assists a game, shooting 33% from deep. He shot 38% from deep from last year with that three-point shooting is going down. But he's almost shooting 60% from the field on 18 shots. They all deserve first-team All-NBA nods. I don't care. I think first-team All-NBA is simple. I think the one debatable position is guard. That was a guard spot, like Curry or Morant, and I think it's Morant, bro. Like, <laughs> I think Morant's been better than Curry this year when they've both been healthy in terms of throughout the season. He's been better. I don't think that's that deep. Second team, Stephen Devin, Durant, Siakam, and Towns. All right, so look, I, if Steph's not going to make first team, he's going to make second. I don't think Trey Young's going to be able to take that from him. So I think Steph is going to make second team. And Devin Booker's going to make second team because of his phenomenal march and really phenomenal season overall. This is probably the best I've seen Devin Booker play in the NBA. Um, he submitted himself as the game's best shooting guard this year. What he's done alongside and without CP3 has been unreal. Career highs and points per game at 26.7. He's averaging five assists per game, basically shooting 46% on 20 shots and has his highest three-point percentage with career-high attempts. He's shooting seven threes a game, and he's shooting an unbelievable career-high from three, from a percentage perspective. So he's doing that. KD, uh, I got KD over Baron, um, and on the second team. He's having a career year. He's basically everything they've hyped Baron up doing, Durant's doing actually now, but his team's actually in the plan. They're seventh in the plan. He's only played 53 games because of an injury to his MCO that took him out for a month that allowed the Nets to slide. But when he's been on the floor, he's almost averaging 30 a night, career high assists, 6.2, 7.4 rebounds per game, shooting 52% from the field, 38% from three, and 90% from the line. I think if he plays a full season, not a full season, but more than 53 games, he'd have a 50-49 year. That, that's just all NBA. The reason why he's not first team is because Giannis is going berserk. So that's all NBA first team. And since Braun dropped out of the scoring title race and won't make the playoffs, I don't think he should be all NBA second. I think that should go to Siakam, man. Siakam has been phenomenal to end the month of April. Throughout the year, he's averaged 22 points per game while playing the most minutes in basketball. He's shooting 50% from the field on 17 shots, 
35% from three on 3.2 three-pointers per game. He's got career highs in rebounds, 8.6, and assists, 5.3, to give you one-point steals per game. He's been more consistent than Jimmy Butler this year, and he's making way more winning plays than LeBron has this year. He's my other forward on the second team. I think Siakam should be all NBA second team. And then I got Big Cat. He's my center. Points per game, 24.6. He's alongside 9.8 rebounds, 3.6 to 6. Shot 52% from the field, 41% for three, 58% from the two-point line. It's due to shooting 41% from three. As a center, he is the reigning three-point shooting champion from the All-Star weekend. I think Patrick Beverly for getting the, the dog out of cat. That has been questioned about him since his college days. I remember Tyler you was saying, that dude's soft, man. He cried so much. To now. He is becoming what everybody thought he would be a few years ago as, who would you want to build around the NBA? They were saying Cat, and he's looking like a franchise big this year. So my third team, I had Darius Garland and DeMar DeRozan, but I'm going to replace Garland with Trey Young. I think Garland's going to miss the all-NBA rankings by a smidge. Um, it's crazy, right? Because Cleveland might actually be higher than the Hawks in the plan, but I could see them giving the All-NBA award. Well, 13 odd to Trey over Garland. Um, so I'm going to say Trey. But I did have Garland up here prior. Career highs and points per game, 21.7 and assists per game, 8.70 shooting, 46% from the field, 37% from three. Career high, 51% from two. Look, man, I always liked Garland coming out of Vanderbilt. I just thought the issue was him and Sexton didn't mix. They couldn't stay healthy. Finally, sexting, not, that's cruel. I don't want to say finally, but unfortunately, sexting gets hurt. And that allows Garland to be the primarily, primary ball handler in the backcourt. And he thrives in a league or a role. Lobbing to Mobley and lobbing to Allen and been perfecting his floater game and his transition three-point shot. He's been an all-NBA guard. I don't think he gets it over Trey. So I think Trey gets it over him, but he he did get my nod for third team. And then I had DeRozan. Actually scored his career high this year with the Bulls. 28 points per game, shot 50% from the field on 20 shots. Career high, 35% from three. And his second consecutive 50% two-point shooting season. Look, man, DeRozan's been phenomenal. And he's probably been the most consistent bull on a team that started so high early in the year and it just fell off the map recently because of injuries. And so I don't think the Bulls will last long in the playoffs due to that. Their defense is falling apart. Their offense has really become a two-man show between DeRozan and Levine. But the way DeRozan's played this year should be rewarded, acknowledged, and decorated as a phenomenal season. He really turned back the hands of time in his career where it looked like on the Spurs, he was slowly fading to black comes to Chicago and thrives like he did in his prime in Toronto. That's an all-NBA selection guy, 13. And my front court is Bron, Butler, and Gobert. Bron's averaging 30 a game, I, I think, because of that, he's going to get the all-NBA nod. Butler's been weird because he sucked after the all-star break for a while shooting from three. As a matter of fact, he's shooting like 23% from three. It's not stellar. But he is averaging 21 a game. He is shooting 48% from the field on 14 shots despite playing 56 games. He's got around six boards, five assists, 1.2 steals. It's been an injury real year for Butler. A lot of people still view Butler as the team's best player. He is a, the face of the best team in the East. That should count for something, which means he'll get a first 
you get an All-NBA nod, just the third team. I've been saying throughout the year, I thought Tyler Hero was their best player, mainly because Bam's been in and Bam was out for a while due to injuries. Butler's been in and out due to injuries, and when he has played, he hasn't been the most consistent. Tyler Hero has, which is why I feel like Hero's been the best Heat this year. That doesn't mean that I think Butler isn't the most important. I don't think that means if Hero continues to be the best player, that he will be successful in the playoffs. That's not going to happen. They're going to need Butler and Bam to be a lot more consistent in the postseason for them to be able to get back to the finals. But the fact of the matter is, this is why Butler is third team in a way. He'd be higher if he played more than 56 games, if he was more consistent in the games that he's played in. And if I didn't have the argument that the potential six man of the year is probably the better player on the team this season, just because he was available and more of an offensively consistent guy. And then Rudy Gobert, man, he leads the league in rebounds. He has 2.1 blocks. He's shooting a lead best 71% from the field on seven shots. Shoots the highest from two at 71.9%. And he's averaging 15.5 points per game. Look, man, Rudy Gobert has been the Jazz's best player all year. You know, Donovan Mitchell looks like he's declined. That whole Utah Jazz team looks like they've declined. The only one that's been steady is Gobert. And they're going to need him in the playoffs because Utah's in spiraling. And I think a lot of people coming into the postseason are going to write them off in terms of not being able to be successful in the playoffs. I'm going to give them a chance, depending on the matchup. If they play Golden State in the first round, they're going to lose. Now, I think that series would go six. I think the series could possibly go seven, but they're going to lose. But if they play Dallas, I'm going to have Utah in seven. They can beat Dallas. It's going to be a very frenetic up and down, high and low, entertaining series. That's going to have a lot of guys on the edge of their seats, but they can beat Dallas. And right now, that's what it looks like they'll play. They'll play Dallas in a 4-5 matchup, and I think they can beat them. I really do. But it's going to be tough, and it's really going to dictate on how they feature Gobert offensively and his impact on the defensive end because he's been Utah's best. He's been Utah's defense. They're top 10 defensively because of him. And I know Draymond – and a lot of other NBA players that are defensive-minded drag Gobert. They drag him. They're like, he's not important. But he is in his system. He is to that team. And he's a damn valuable basketball player, which is why he's an all-NBA third-teamer, in my opinion, at the center spot. Now, moving on to what, or rather where, do the Lakers go from here? Now, Los Angeles, they're not going to make the playoffs. Um, they won a game last night against Oklahoma City. Who cares? They're going to be a lottery team this year. They're going to be in a lottery draft selection. Now, they're not going to have their lottery pick because if the Lakers are in the top 10, I think, the Pelicans keep their pick. Well, get their pick so the Lakers no longer could keep it. But unrestricted free agents, they got Malik Monk, uh, Carmelo Anthony, Avery Bradley, Trevor Reza, Wayne Ellison, Dwight Howard, Kim Baysmore, DJ Augustine. They're all free agents. Um, best guy they probably have a chance to keep out of this free agency list is Augustine. I think they might want to keep him, especially if they get rid of um, Westbrook, which I don't think they're going to keep. I know Westbrook's going to opt into his contract. I don't expect them to keep him. I think they're going to try to shelf him. But I think Augustine stays either as their team starter next year or maybe their lead backup off the bench. I, I think they like his veteran presence and the productivity he's put into the team since he's come on. 
Austin Reeves and Stanley Johnson have team options. I think they're going to get exercise and they're going to get brought. They're going to get brought back too. Now the question is, what should the Lakers do? My personal opinion: they should blow it up. Look, since AD has arrived, they've gotten worse every year. So when he arrived, they won the championship. All right, the next year they lose in the first round, and then, then the year after that they don't even make the playoffs. All these years have in common are injuries. Now AD survived the championship run without getting hurt. Although I do remember him getting nicked up twice. He got nicked up before the Bucks game that they played in Milwaukee in like the middle of the year before the pandemic. And then he did get nicked up. I think the last game of the NBA finals, he was like starting to break down a little bit and it was kind of like, Oh man, could AD make it? And he did survive. So he was kind of getting nicked up that year, but it was briefly and barely that second season him and LeBron couldn't survive at all. And they both broke down in the playoff series against the Suns. And then this year, they broke down even before a playoff matchup could happen because it didn't happen. They were broke up during the year. Bottom line is your top two players in LeBron and AD are injury prone. And you have no first-round picks until 2026. So to re-maximize your future as a franchise, you need to shelve your injury-prone stars now, get some compensation back, and start the rebuild. You got a championship. When you got AD, that was the goal. You won a title. Teams would be grateful to be in the position you're in. But the Lakers are egotistical. They don't want to just win one title. They want to win as many as possible, which is why I don't think they're going to make this move because maybe in their eyes, they feel like they can get the best out of LeBron and AD if stuff falls their way. But the thing called the injury gods, they don't always fall your way. And when you have players that are talented as LeBron and AD and they're injury prone, they severely almost always don't fall your way. So L.A. should take the writing on the wall and utilize it to move on and rebuild because they don't have any compensation. So you can trade A.D. somewhere because his stock is still kind of high based upon what he has been as a player throughout his career and what he was two years ago. So if you trade A.D. to like Portland, you could get like an Anthony Simons, uh, Yusuf Nurkic, and some co- you can get some, some compensation back. And you ask LeBron where he wants to go. He'll tell you. And if he really does want to go to Golden State and play with Steph Curry, I say you trade in the conference because you ain't competing no time soon. Trade for Curry. Well, no, trade for Curry. But trade LeBron to the Warriors and get you Wiseman, Jordan Poole, and such as back and call it a day. Do that. But in reality, they're not going to do that. I think what L.A. is going to do is they're going to keep A.D. and Braun for one more season. Uh, but they're going to trade Russ and THT for some complementary pieces that fit around the LBJ and AD core. Maybe they try to make the Russ THT transaction with the Rockets again, where they'll include that 2026 first round pick. And maybe the Rockets back probably won't get you John Wall because you don't want it. But maybe they give you Christian Wood and Dennis Schroeder. Ironic, right? Ironic as heck. You know, I think Schroeder will be a free agent. So they won't be able to get Schroeder. But you can get Christian Wood back who was the guy they were trying to get at the deadline, but the Rockets wanted that first-round pick, and they can do it. But you can get Wood back, you know what I'm saying, with Wall, if that's what it's going to take. But, yeah, I think they're going to keep LeBron in AD for one more year. If it doesn't work this year, then I think they're going to blow it up. But if I'm them, I'm blowing it up now because – Bron's not getting any younger. AD's not getting any healthier. Your window is closed. You don't have a two to three year title window like Milwaukee has, Brooklyn has, even, which is crazy. Um, 
even Golden State asked because if Golden State doesn't win this year, they could be like, well, well next year, Wiseman's going to be healthy. Clay's going to uh, have a year under his belt to continue getting acclimated to the NBA game. You're not like them. You're basically, the Lakers are basically in a crazy way, bro. Um, the Lakers are kind of like the Blazers, but with a ring where it's you got a championship off of it, but long term, the pairing of LeBron and AD just won't work. Not because they're not compatible with each other, like McCollum and Lillard just weren't compatible as a backcourt. They're just not functionable together because of the health risk. The health risk. I mean, that's just real. AD and LeBron can't stay healthy anymore. AD never could. Now LeBron's breaking down. So you either choose between one of the two, and I don't think they want to choose between any of the two. I think they want both, and if they can't have both, they don't want any. And so making a deal to get a future back in draft picks is a move to make. And I think it's something that they should strongly consider. But alas, I think THG and Russ are gone. They'll get some pieces back for that, and they'll just build around LeBron and AD again and hope they last. But the West isn't going anywhere. Next year, the Clippers will be healthy. Next year, Denver will be healthy. fully. At least Jamal Murray will be back 100%. Golden State will be a lot healthier of a unit and a more competent, constructive unit with their rookies, with Wiseman, with play all those guys back for one final push, right? Pelicans will be better because Zion's going to be back. I know Zion trying to get back for this playoff run. I don't see it happening. But if he's not bad for this run, he's going to be back next year. The West is going to be back in terms of they're going to be a lot of guys that weren't competitors this year or were competitors but not real. They'll be back and healthy. And then you still got to worry about the Suns who aren't going anywhere anytime soon. So I think the best days are behind the Lakers. And if they're wise, you see the writing on the wall. Hey, you move accordingly, just like OKC saw the writing on the wall with Westbrook and George. It was like, we're not going to get out the first round anytime soon, let alone compete in the West. Let's blow it up and pursue a future. I think that's what the Lakers should do. So last topic on the day before we wrap up this pod, the wide receiver marketplace. There's a guy named Christian Kirk, former Arizona Cardinals slot receiver, now on the Jacksonville Jaguars. He has been labeled as breaking the marketplace at the wide receiver position when he secured a four-year, $72 million contract that blew off everybody's socks for free agency. The contract does have an out in 2024 that allows the Jags to escape paying $39 million to Kirk. But $38 million of his salary is guaranteed. And it's guaranteed to a slot receiver whose best year was just under a thousand yards as a receiver. He reset the market. After that transaction, Devontae Adams got 65 million guaranteed on his new five-year deal after the Packers shipped him to Vegas. When Tyree got shipped from Kansas City to Miami, and the resources are because of a contract dispute, he got 72 million guaranteed on his 40-year, $120 million contract extension. And now the conundrum known as Debo Samuel is here at the wide receiver position. He's resorted to go to IG to express his opinions, as in delete all his uh, Niners memorabilia connected to the team, delete his profile picture that has him in a Niner uniform to express that he wants a pay raise 
And Clarence Hill Jr. of the Fort Worth Star Telegram says Debo wants to be the highest paid wide receiver. No, not even highest paid wide receiver. Highest paid non-quarterback in the NFL because of what he provided to the Niners. All right, so I want to address the wide receiver marketplace. Um, Yeah, Christian Curry did reset the market. Did anybody expect that? No. And I like Christian Kirk a lot. I thought he had a career year with Arizona where he finally thrived, not as an X or a Y, but inside as a slot. Him and Kyler Murray had pretty solid chemistry and connection. He was outstanding last season. It helped him get paid. But the main reason why the Jaguars overpaid for Kirk is because no one wants to go to Jacksonville. They have dysfunction at the top with Khan and Balky. Urban Meyer was a huge part of that dysfunction because they hired him kept him on board and really didn't want to cut ties with him until he kicked the kicker. Then it was like, we got to let him go because he's been such a blatant pain in the butt that it's leaking out to national media. And we were looking like doofuses. So players don't want to go in that toxicity, but they will come if you throw a bag. That is why the likes of Kirk came. That's the, uh, the likes of Foya, Alokon came. That's why these guys came from their respective institutions. The bag. And I don't blame them. But every cause has an effect. So the cause of paying Kirk to come to come to Jacksonville, that ineptitude, results in other receivers who look at Kirk's contract and is like, bro, I am better than that guy. I want to raise. Uh, so with Devontae, he just wanted to leave Green Bay. The rumor was Green Bay was going to pay him what he wanted, a lot more than what he was going to get with the Raiders. And he was like, I just want to go back to Vegas, play with my boy Derek, uh, be close to my family. I'm at a point in my career where I'm probably not going to win a championship, but what I do want to do is play in an environment that makes me happy. That's why he went. Tyreek, opposite. Got the ring, wants to get paid. Kansas City didn't want to pay him top dollar. He was like, all right, trade me somewhere that's going to pay me top dollar. Oh, it's the Jets or the Dolphins? I want to go back home to Miami and be the richest receiver in football. Got a championship. I know I'm going to all the fame. Let me play my last years in the league. At the crib, close to fam, swimming in money. And they did it to him. Now, Kansas City since then wants DK Metcalf, which makes me think, bro, if you just want to replace Hill with an elite, I'm not going to say DK's elite, with a wide receiver that's at the precipice of being elite where you're going to have to pay him almost top dollar. Why trade Tyreek? Should have just kept Tyreek, paid him top dollar, and keep him moving. And that's on Kansas City, though. They'll figure that out in the draft, I guess. I, I don't – I didn't understand that. Like, when they made the move, I'm like, okay, didn't want to pay him. Cool, so you're going to go cheap. Then it's like, all right, we didn't want to pay him, but we want to trade our capital to get a receiver that's at the end of his rookie deal who we're also going to have to pay market value. I'm like, well, pay the guy that was already on your team that helped you get to a Super Bowl, helped you create – a powerhouse in AFC, pay him top dollar, and then we don't have a problem. But that was a problem. Now, Debo, he he is a part of that cycle of receivers that wants to get paid. He's a unique prospect because he had over 1,400 yards receiving, almost 500 yards rushing, or a little over 500. He had PFF grades of 87.7 as a receiver and 85.3 as a rusher. He was the Niners' highest offensively graded player on their team at 90.3. He is a do-everything wide out on that squad. He is Percy Harvin on steroids. And a lot of people want to dilute his receiver ability. Like, he doesn't run great routes, but he's a guy you just get the ball in his hands and he just breaks tackles. He's sleeping on my man. He's a decent receiver in my eyes. 
I think he can even expand as a wideout if he had a competent quarterback throwing to him. He had to do all that to make up for the ineptitude of Jimmy Garoppolo. I don't think he'll have to do as much of that when Trey Lance comes to the table. And I, maybe that's what uh, Kyle Shanahan realizes. Like, yo, once Trey Lance comes in, he throws the ball better. Once we create a system designed around his passing abilities, we get to showcase Debo more as a receiver. But you got to pay the man for what he had to be to make up for Jimmy G shortcoming. He had to be basically the best non-quarterback player on your team. When we look at the Niners roster, they got three players on their squad that stand out. Debo, Bosa, Fred Warner. I think Nick Bosa is the best player on the team. He came in from Ohio State, became a bookend pass rusher day one, automatically made the Niners front line that had first-round draft picks in the past with Armstead and Bucker. He comes in, makes them a top-five defensive line overnight. That's because of Bosa, bro. Ferocious off the edge, relentless motor. You got to double him. You got to slide your protection towards his pass rushing expertise, and that opens it up in terms of one-on-one opportunities for the guys opposite him. So he's the best player on that squad. I think the second's Debo. I think it used to be Fred because he was the sideline and sideline backer that kind of put everything into position as the leader of the back half of that defense. But it's Debo now after what he just did single-handedly kind of led the Niners into the playoffs, helped them make a long-standing playoff run. He has been their constant engine of productivity. You got to pay the man for his services. Now, here's where the trickiness lies. When they pay Debo, they're going to have to pay Nick Bosa probably almost immediately because I don't think in their projection they thought we're going to have to pay Debo before Bosa. So I know Bosa's waiting. Like, whatever you're giving him, I got to get paid more. So the Niners are in a tough spot. I think they're going to get the deal done. Um, And what Stephon Diggs has showed, he also got a raise. He didn't become the highest paid receiver. Now, you can also say, well, Diggs doesn't have the leverage to become the highest paid receiver anymore because while he's been productive since he's been with Buffalo, Gabriel Davis is developing, Isaiah McKenzie is developing, Josh Allen's kind of taken off. So we can kind of come up to him and be like, hey, dog, we might have to make you take a little cut, but it's worth it because you get to hoop with these dudes. Well, not hoop, play ball with these guys. And he was willing to do it for sure. I don't think Debo's going to be willing to do that now. He's not at the end of his career. His rookie contract's almost done. He probably thinks, bro, like, I am your offense until further notice. Like, I am your offense until we clearly see Trey Lance is able to take that next step. So pay me my royalties for being the offense for a whole year last season. And a lot of people can say, well, Debo really not like that. I mean, you know, he, that last year was just the outlier. Bro, his rookie year, he was phenomenal. All right. A lot of people sleeping on his rookie season. He didn't have numbers that he had last year in his rookie year, but he was phenomenal in the same role. Second year, he got hurt. So did the whole Niners roster. That's why they fell off. This year, he stays healthy again. He does everything. He deserves it. I think he's a lot better receiver than what people give him credit for. I think the Niners are just in a sticky proposition where, again, they didn't expect to pay Debo before Bosa. So they know once we, Empty the stack for Debo. We're going to have to empty it for Bosa. So it'll be interesting to see how the Niners allocate that. 
perspective, I don't think he's on the trading block. Now, I know a lot of people, are, I saw a tweet saying Debo's in a tough spot because he's asking for non, he's asking for the most non-quarterback money in the league when we're in a draft that's loaded with receivers. But I'm also like, all right, so who who's out there that can do what Debo does? Traylon Burks probably will be there when the Niners selects. Does that make Debo expendable? It could, but man, Debo is special, bro, because he's built at a at a size where he's kind of small but compact. So he can operate in the slot productively. He's got the agility and acceleration to break tackles and hit it to another gear. Traylon Burks may just be a little bit too big to just draft and come in and play that Debo role. I know I with Burks, man, the, the combine that he had and what he's shown on tape, he screams Kelvin Benjamin to me. More so than Debo. So if the Niners can play that game if they want. Like, we don't need Debo. We can just get a Debo in a draft. You need Debo. He's special for your system. Just like Alvin Kamara is special for the Saints system. You keep that guy in-house if you can. And I think they will. They're going to make it work they're going to make something shake out he's going to get paid is he going to get the highest non-football player money i don't think so but i think if you come with the debo same as you're like you know what we're going to start at 60 million guaranteed how's that sound and then i think once you work it from there all parties will get what they dearly dearly want for sure so, man, this is the end of episode 49 of the Independent Intel podcast. But before I go, I want to give a shout out to the NBA. It's been a very good year this year, man. A lot of competitive basketball from a variety of organizations, even the trash teams, when they weren't trying to tank and they put their best prospects on the floor, they went at it and they competed to win titles. Now, coming into the year, we quickly realized who was tanking, OKC, Orlando, somewhat Houston. But I thought everybody else gave their best shot. And then after the All-Star break, you saw more teams embrace the tank. But the ABA is in good hands in the context of the play-in has added more competitive brand of basketball in late April that we haven't seen before. Um, I think we have a variety of young talents that are coming in and making a name for themselves, which means once the premier aging stars on LeBron and KD leave, I think the league will be in good hands from there. And the game has such international flux where our top players are international superstars is going to expand the brand even more. So this year for the NBA, in my opinion, it's going to go down as one of the more underrated seasons of all time. I know a lot of people like to say 2016 was great because Kobe retired the three, one lead Durant Curry's MVP season. This might be one of the more underrated. The MVP race is leaked into the last week of the season, a year where LeBron doesn't make the playoffs, but Curry and the Warriors ever serves. KD has a chance to compete against Giannis in the first round. Like, that's going to be crazy for ratings. The league's in good hands, man. And while this draft coming up doesn't look the greatest, I think moving forward, you're going to have a lot of talented basketball prospects coming into the league, looking to give it their best shot. And they're going to add their own flair, individualism, and insight and intel on making this game even better. And that's what it's all about. And that's what all fans, and I think Commissioner Adam Silver will appreciate about the expansion of the NBA as a whole. But with that, this is episode 49 from your boy, Kimboi Bomani. I'll be back with you guys next week. Could be with another guest. 
could be another solo dolo episode that's gonna be a special one though episode 50 episode 50 that's gonna be a great milestone to achieve but i'll be back to wrap with you then but until next time holla peace